0: First John chapter 3 verse 18 John writes my little children let us not love in word or in tongue but in deed and in truth and by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him for if our heart condemns us God is greater than our heart and knows all things Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment. That we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given to us. Remember, one of the questions that's asked and answered in this little epistle is how can a person know that he or she is truly saved? How can you know that you've been redeemed? How can you know that you've been forgiven? How can you know that you've been reconciled? In this chapter, John warns us that the person who lives in ongoing perpetual sin is not of God in verse 6 at the end of the verse, in verse 8 and in verse 10. And so John exhorts the reader to love his brother, not like Cain in verses 11 through 15, but rather adopt a willingness to sacrifice and if need be, lay down our lives for others in verses 16 through 18. So, the confirmation of Christ in our lives, the confirmation that Jesus is inside of us, living inside of us, begins with a heart of compassion that leads to a heart of assurance, that leads to a heart of confidence. And so, John says, We walk in truth, we walk in obedience. We walk in love. The person who doesn't have a right relationship with others is going to suffer in their relationship with God. That very simple truth should not shock you. It should confirm inside of you the truth of what John is saying. The believer who walks in love enjoys the benefits of truth and peace. With God. So John wants the believer to have assurance in their heart. And by the way, a great threat to assurance in the heart is guilt and a condemning heart. A condemning heart is one that robs the believer of joy and peace. Another term for the condemning heart is the accusing conscience paul talks about it in the book of romans he he talks about this moral organ that's inside of us and this moral organ your conscience motivates you to do what's right and so it, it talks about either accusing or excusing our actions. And sometimes the heart accuses us rightly and sometimes wrongly. But in Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? When the Bible's speaking of the heart, it's not talking about the organ in your chest that pumps blood throughout your body. It's talking about the inner emotions and convictions and will the only reasonable answer to john or jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked the only reasonable answer to who can know it is god himself god alone can plumb the depths of your heart seek the recesses that are inside of you And so, I'm sure that your heart has condemned you at some point in your life. Each and every person within the sound of my voice has had an experience inside of their heart where their heart was telling them that something wasn't quite right. And it was either fair or unfair. But here's what we know for sure that the Lord never makes the mistake of judging unfairly or inconsistently or falsely. God's judgments are always true. Someone on my radio program today asked me the question, how do I know when judging is right and when judging is wrong? And I reminded them that judging is wrong when it's done superficially, when it's done hypocritically, when it's done disconnected from what the Bible says. Warren Wiersbe writes, No Christian should treat sin lightly, but no Christian should be harder on himself than God is, unquote. So there are those who take perverse pleasure in self-examination and self-condemnation. God's justice is satisfied with the cross of Calvary. God's justice is satisfied with the sacrifice that Jesus has made. And the Bible also says, if you are not doing and walking and living in the truth, you run the very horrible risk of grieving the Holy Spirit inside of you. So what about the heart that feels guilty? What about the person who lives in what seems like a constant state of perpetual guilt? What is it that we do when our heart is burdened and there's no sense of relief? What do we do about past sins that haunt us and that hinders our present fellowship and friendship with Christ. What do we do about that? That's what this passage is going to talk about. There was a letter that came to uh, an I- the IRS. I'll read it to you. Gentlemen, enclosed you'll find a check for $150. I cheated on my income tax return last year. And I haven't been able to sleep ever since. If I still have trouble sleeping, I'll send you the rest. Sincerely, a taxpayer. We have things that have happened and it comes back and it speaks to us. I read another interesting story. Members of the Methodist Church in Wilsall, Montana. They got quite a shock when they opened an old coffin and they found a shed inside of their Uh, They they found a coffin in a shed behind their church building, and in the coffin there was a skeleton. And the county coroner determined that it was a realistic, wired-together copy of the real thing. The skeleton, it seems, was a prop that was used by the local oddfellow chapter, and the oddfellows use skeleton models in their initiation ceremonies. And there'd be a lot more surprises in our churches if the hidden skeletons of our past all of a sudden popped out, if all of a sudden in the hearts of the people in this room, the hearts were suddenly open and you, be, you were exposed of all of the things that you've ever done, people would look at each other and they would go, oh, oh. But we're going to take care of it right off the bat. Now, I don't want a show of hands and I don't want you to shout out your sins. That's not what I'm looking for here. But what I am looking for is for you to think just for a moment. Just for a moment. Just for, just a, I want you to do a thought experiment just for a moment. I want you to think about not the worst thing that you've ever done, but the third worst thing that you've ever done. Try. The, just the third worst, because we're going we're gonna to do a countdown. The third worst thing that you've ever done. Just picture in your mind what it is that you've done. And then the second worst thing that you've ever done. And then the worst thing, the worst thing that you've ever done. The, the, the thing that when you did it, you thought to yourself, I could go to hell for this. And then I'm going to let you know that God's willing to forgive the third thing on your list and the second thing on your list and the first thing on your list, that there's real grace and mercy and forgiveness. If you have a guilty heart, if you have a condemning heart, If there's ever been a moment in your life where you cried out to God and you wondered whether or not you would be able to deal with the guilt, this message is for you. It begins with the ABCs, the assurance in our heart. Look what it says in verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in Truth. When John writes these words, again, he's using a term of affection. My little children, let us not love in word or tongue. He is, he's linking our assurance once again to this issue of love. One of the key thoughts in chapters 3 and 4 and 5 is sonship. Or relationship, which results in a new nature inside of the believer. And so John isn't writing to a person who is disconnected from God or who's seeking God. He's writing to the person who knows and loves and has a right relationship. And so they've been given a new nature. True Christianity isn't simply a matter of having the right doctrine or the right speech. It's the right doctrine and the right speech that leads to right actions. Each and every one of you probably grew up in a world where you had a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or a cousin or a grandma who said, talk is, you know, talk is cheap. Claims of love take two forms. Substantiated and unsubstantiated. Anyone can say anything about anything. but That doesn't make it true. John doesn't know of a faith that's disconnected from love. John doesn't know about a Christianity that is somehow disconnected, not just simply by what you think, but by what you say, and also by what you do. Anyone can claim faith. Anyone can say anything about anything. But that doesn't make it true. True love is expressed in action. And the fruit of living faith is what you actually do. And so this is why John argues that the person who sees his brother in need and has the ability to help and doesn't help in verse 17, that that person has every reason to believe that the love of God doesn't abide in them. Love isn't simply lofty language. It isn't just vague sentiment. And when I use the term sentiment, I want you to know exactly exactly what I mean by that. Sentiment is emotion without commitment. Sentiment is watching a Hallmark Channel and crying your eyes out. And then you live your life like nothing has changed. It's the kind of sentiment that doesn't actually result in a change. It begins with feelings of compassion and concern inside of the heart. And then it continues with a tangible and a substantial sacrifice. It means that you really are who you say that you are. I heard a story today uh, about a man who desperately wanted to get a job. And this wasn't a lazy guy. This wasn't a guy who was just sitting around and, and, and not trying to find a job. This was a person who went to the employment office at the beginning of the week. And then he spent the rest of the week diligently looking for a job, diligently looking for a job. And he couldn't find a job. And he looked for a job for 12 months and he couldn't find a job. He would go in and in the 13th month and in the 14th month, the clerk sort of locked eyes with him and he locked eyes with him. And and he goes, I think I have just the job for you. He goes, but it's not in your job description it isn't wasn't on your resume and it's it's way outside of anything that you've ever done and i'm not even sure i should should think about it but i think you're the per- perfect person for the job and he goes i am so desperate for a job just tell me what it is he goes well the local zoo lost their monkey and the, but while the monkey's starting to Before he gets here, they need someone to just dress in the monkey suit and and just stall until the monkey can get there. You have to be there at 8 o'clock in the morning to put the suit on, and then you have to report for duty at 9 o'clock. He goes, I'll do it. So he goes and he puts on the suit and he's amazed at how real it looks and, and he's amazed and, and he goes out and, and he starts doing stuff and, and just having fun with the people and 10 people will show up, 15 people will show up, he'll do the monkey see, monkey do, pretty soon he's on the trapeze, he's doing tricks, 20 people, 50 people, 100 people, 150 people Show up at the he's the most popular attraction at the zoo. They're even thinking about canceling their order on the monkey, and so he's doing this high wire trapeze, and he falls into the pit right next to him, and it's the lion's pit. And the lion starts approaching, it just looks at him and looks and, and, and starts inching his way towards him. And the, the guy just starts backing up and backing up. He doesn't know what to do. He, he doesn't know what to say. He's getting ready. And, and he goes, wait. And he hears a voice whisper. Shh, shut up. You're going to get us both fired. <laughs> but I think that that's kind of the way Christianity is often. We pretend to be something that we are not and we get so used to playing a role. There's a comfort in the role, but something is desperately missing. Consider the people that God has placed in your life. Ask yourself the question, what does love require from me? Towards my wife, towards my children, towards my husband. Towards my family and my friends. In verse 19 it says, And by this we know that we're of the truth. And shall assure our hearts before him. John offers proof that we are of the truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth. And so he says, this is how we know that we have a right relationship with God, that we're walking in the truth and we have assurance. And I want you to look closely at that little word in verse 19. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure. That that interesting word in the original language means to soothe, to persuade. It has the same meaning as our modern word, tranquilize. You know what tranquilize means. It means to sort of medicate into a kind of a peaceful state. And so he says, and by this, we know that we're of the truth and shall assure that that which will medicate, assure, tranquilize, calm the heart inside of us. John is describing a heart condition that everyone can possess. God doesn't want us to live in a constant state of fear and uncertainty concerning our standing with God and our standing with Christ and our standing with each other. So where do you stand with God? Do you have a heart that's filled with accusation or assurance? And so this becomes something really important to you because when your heart inside of you says, you're a phony, you're a hypocrite, you're not real, you're not a real Christian. Look what it says in verse 20. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Isn't that interesting? John is speaking of two kinds of heart. The accusing heart, the assured heart, the condemning heart, the confident heart. And the word condemn, for if our heart condemn us, it suggests accusation blame, fault. The word condemnation means the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes that you've been committed. The word condemnation is the same word that would use to describe a judge who brings down the gavel and says, guilty. That's what he's talking about. If your heart declares that you're guilty, puts you down. And by the way, believers as well as unbelievers face this problem. The problem of guilt. The problem of guilt is so enormous that for many people, they live in constant fear, constant terror. Some people live even with suicidal thoughts. Because you know what you've done. You know what's inside of your heart. You know that something's not quite right. You know that if you're not praying, if you're not fellowshipping, if you're not growing, if you're not learning, if you're not maturing, if you're not walking in obedience, you distance yourself from the Bible. You distance yourself from the truth. You distance yourself from other believers. You isolate yourself and you distance yourself. But what's interesting is... The more you know about Jesus and the more you know about grace and the more you know about truth and you, the more you know about the Bible, it has one of two effects on you. It increases your fear as you begin to understand more and more that your life isn't the kind of life that's described in the Bible or it has the effect that you know more about grace and you know more about truth and you know more about Jesus. And because you know about that, you know about grace and you know about mercy and you know about, about forgiveness. For some who read the Bible and see God's standard and they examine their heart, they become plagued with a sense of falling short and failure. And I understand about this. This was the thing that kept me from Christianity for so long. People would talk to me about Christ and they would talk to me about Christianity, and I would say, This is not for me. You don't understand. I'm not good at being good. I'm really good at being bad. I'm good at being selfish. I'm good at being self absorbed. But sincere Christians, people who take their walk seriously, People who really do want to do what's right. People who really want to change and who want to go in a different direction, who are are tired of living in darkness and wickedness and sin and find themselves going back over and over again to a lifestyle that isn't a part of their life. It makes perfect sense to me that they're going to be plagued with a sensitive heart. I'm reminded of a poem that I read, The Man in the Mirror. It, it goes like this. When you get what you want in your struggle for self and the world makes you king for a day, just go to a mirror and look at yourself and see that what that man has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or wife who judgment upon you must pass. The fellow whose verdict Counts most in your life is the one staring back from the glass some people may think you a straight shooting chum and call you a wonderful guy but the man in the glass says you're only a bum if you can't look him straight in the eye he's the fellow to please never mind the rest for he's with you clear up to the end And you've passed your most dangerous, difficult test if the man in the glass is your friend. You may fool the whole world down the pathway of years and get pats on the back as you pass. But your final reward will be heartaches and tears if you've cheated the man in the glass. This isn't something just specific to Christianity. It was Socrates himself who said to thine own self, be true. There is someone, whether you like it or not, that you have to be honest with. The psalmist knew about it when he said, for innumerable evils have surrounded me. In Psalm 40, verse 12, it says, my iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to look up. There are more than... The hair's on my head, therefore my heart fails me. The psalmist said, I know what I'm really like, and I'm overwhelmed by my wickedness. Every Christian has this problem it's the competing voices, it's a kind of trial with our heart as the accuser, ourselves as the defendant. And God as the judge, or law as the judge, if our heart condemns us, we're distinct from our heart and stand, as it were, outside of it. John Stott says it must assure or reassure and pacify our heart's misgivings. You see, our conscience isn't infallible. Your conscience doesn't always know what's right. It just... it just encourages you to do what's right. I've used this illustration over and over again. Your conscience is a moral organ. It's like your stomach. Your stomach doesn't know what to eat. It'll try to absorb. It'll try to digest whatever you throw down there. You have to make the choice about what you're going to put in your stomach. And your conscience informs you, motivates you, Just like your stomach motivates you to eat, your conscience motivates you to do what's right, but it doesn't always know what's right. And that's why you have family members and friends and maybe even you yourself have sometimes said in your life, this is right for me. You ask them, why are you doing this? Why are you involved in this sin? Why are you involved in this wickedness? What can you do with an accusing heart? John offers the solution. God is greater than your heart. In what way? Because he's greater. And what else? Because he knows all things. He's offering two things. We confess our sin to God. We place our sin and failure under the blood of Jesus. We recognize the greatness of our failure. We recognize the horror of our sin. We turn our attention away from our failure toward God's mercy. And God's grace and God's forgiveness. And then the voice of failure says, God's grace isn't enough. God's mercy isn't enough. God's forgiveness isn't enough. And John says, no. God's mercy is as, God is, is as great as God is great. His grace is as great as he is. And his forgiveness is as great as he is. The love of God has been made manifest in the sacrifice of Jesus. So grace and mercy are available in Christ. God didn't save you because you're good or worthy or because you deserved mercy and grace. Jesus comes into the world and he rescues sinners. In the Old Testament economy, I love the illustration, Israel worshiped in the tabernacle in the wilderness and there are instructive symbols in that tabernacle. In the middle of the tabernacle, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. And the children of Israel kept, in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were tablets of stone inscribed with the Ten Commandments. And those stones reminded the children of Israel about their failure before God. It reminded them about their failure and it reminded them about judgment and it reminded them about wrath and punishment because of their sin. And the Holy of Holies was never exposed to the public. It was never put on display. It was a sacred place. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was a slab of pure gold that was known as the mercy seat. It was as long as the ark was long. It was as wide as the ark was wide. Its exact dimensions were the dimensions of the ark because it was intended to illustrate the truth that no matter how far your sins were, no matter how wide your sins were, there would be enough of the mercy seat available to you to wash you and cleanse you and purge you and forgive you. The grace of God, the mercy of God is as great and as wide as as is necessary. In Psalm 103, verse 10, it says, he has not dealt with us according to our sins. He hasn't punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgression from us. The Bible story is there's a solution to guilt. It can go away. There's one dimension that's not given in the mercy seat. How thick? How thick is it? I believe the reason we're not told is because God's mercy is always enough. It's thick enough to address your experience So John's answer to the condemnation of our heart, God's greater. God knows. Think about that for just a moment. God's greater than anything that you've done, and God knows the truth. Think about that for just a moment. He knows how we feel. He knows how we feel inside. He knows the truth, whether we're sincere or insincere. The Lord knows your heart. The Lord even knows when your heart condemns you. The Lord knows whether or not you're ashamed or you're proud. He knows whether you feel worthy or unworthy. He knows whether you think you deserve or don't deserve His grace. He knows whether or not you're speaking foolish things and stupid things and broken things. God knows everything. He knows everything that that you're thinking and everything that you're done, we know that the Bible says that God is omniscient. There's no new information that you can give to God. There's nothing that could ever happen or has happened where God in heaven always said, oh, I didn't see that coming. That never happens. He is completely aware and has always been aware and is never taken by surprise. The Lord knows what you did 40 years ago, if you're old enough. He knows what you did 30 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 10 years ago. But he also knows what you're going to do tomorrow, and day after tomorrow, and five years from now, and 10 years from now, if you happen to live. He knows every moment of every single day of every single moment of your life. And that should terrify you or give you assurance. It should terrify you if you've never experienced his mercy, his grace, and his love and his forgiveness. And it should, like an ocean of peace, wash over you as you consider every moment of every guilty, weird and wicked thing that you've done is covered under the blood of Jesus if you've never experienced his greatness if you've never experienced his love if you've never experienced his, his mercy then you're in trouble but if you know him if you have assurance of the forgiveness of your sin the assurance in your heart the presence of Jesus in your heart the the joy and peace in your heart, the hope in your heart, the presence of Jesus in your heart is greater than all of the guilt of the combined transgressions of anyone and everyone who's ever done anything wrong. That's the assurance. God is greater and God knows And you know what's interesting to me about the text? In verse 20, when it says, for if our heart condemns us, and there's a very good likelihood that it is, God is greater than our heart. Think about it for just a moment. What it seems to be saying is that no matter how great the guilt God's mercy is greater. No matter how pressing it is, the knowledge of God's character can quiet your condemning heart. That seems to be what's being saying. He knows everything. God knows whether you're sincere. The knowledge of his character can quiet the condemning heart. The love of God and then trust for God become stronger than any chemical tranquilizer that someone might prescribe to say, you need to take this and chill out. And so in verse 21, when it says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Here, confidence means the assurance that we're accepted by God in Christ. The confidence is rooted in the truth in verse 20, that God knows everything, that he's confident that, that, and that, that this confidence doesn't allow for foolish pride. Uh, there's a very famous quote by Ulrich Zwingli who says, quote, Our confidence is Christ, in Christ does not make us lazy or negligent or careless but on the contrary, it awakens us. It urges us on. It makes us active in living righteous lives and doing good. There's no self-confidence compared to this. So, what's the solution to guilt? Assurance. What's the solution to guilt? Well, guess what? that assurance provides a basis for answered prayer. Look at verses 22 and 23. It says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Think about it. Assurance, which leads to confidence in answered prayer. John's Assurance provides the basis. This is the B of the ABCs. That's the basis of answered prayer. And whatever you ask, at this point you should pause and you should say, well, what am I asking? If you've got a guilty heart, what are you asking for? Forgiveness, grace, mercy. If you're condemned, you want exoneration. What is it that we want from God? What have you always wanted? Forgiveness? Hope? Peace? Cleansing? A brand new start? And what an incredible statement. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. It's like a blank check with unlimited assets attached to it. Imagine you have a rich friend and they just give you a blank check and they sign it. And you go, how much can I make it for? And the person says, dream big. Think big. Think as big as you can possibly think. And then think a little bit more. It's it's the kind of of... of definition of prayer. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Because we have assurance and confidence. Why? Because we love him. Why? Because we love each other. Why? Because we're walking in the truth. Why? Because we're obedient. This becomes the definition of prayer. Prayer is more than just simply talking to God. It's specific conversation about specific things. And so again, I want hope. I want grace, forgiveness, peace, cleansing. And by the way, one of the reasons, maybe the greatest reason, that our prayers are hindered is because of the presence of guilt in our heart. It's the voice that whispers in your ear hypocrite, liar, deceiver. You thought those things, you did those things, you saw those things, and now you're coming to God and you're praying. When your life is just marked by wickedness and guilt. Again, that's why he says you need assurance in your heart that your sins are forgiven. Our prayers can be hindered by guilt. It can be hindered by unconfessed sin in Psalm 66 verse 18 where it says, If I regard sin in my heart, the psalmist said, you don't hear me. So if we have guilt in our heart, or we we have sin in our heart, we have we're insincere. Matthew six five. We have carnal motives, unbelief, satanic activity, trouble between husbands and wives. There's all kinds of things that hinder prayer, robbing God, refusing to submit to biblical teaching, refusing to forgive, refusing to walk in submission and obedience to the Lord. All of these things can hinder us. But what can help us? Assurance and confidence. It becomes the basis of prayer. And then it becomes the basis of answered prayer. Because now we can pray. And our prayers become sacred. We're given permission to pray with confidence and assurance. Our prayers are simple but bold, sincere, persistent, definite, in accordance with God's will. And guess what? Now, whatever we ask, we receive from him. I just want to love you, Lord. I'll answer that prayer. I want to love my brothers and my sisters. I'll answer that prayer. I want to walk in the truth instead of lies. I'll answer that prayer. I want to help someone who's hurting more than I hurt. I think I can arrange for that to happen. I want to honor you and walk with you and be with you. I want to hear your voice and I want to do your will. I'll answer those prayers. And in verse 23, it says, And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. There's something I want to draw to your attention in verse 23. And this is his commandment, singular. That you should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment, singular again. What's interesting to me about this verse is in that single statement, it embraces loving Jesus, loving each other, and belief. And this is his commandment that we should believe on his name. The word believe is very interesting. The word believe here means more than just acknowledge, it means more even than just to confess. It means to trust in and to rely on and cling to. So, what does it mean to believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ? It doesn't mean simply to believe, oh, I think God's son's name is Jesus. That's not what it's talking about. I think what it means, it means to believe everything that's been revealed in the Old Testament and the New Testament About who Jesus is, his nature, his character, his mission, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. It means to believe everything, everything, everything that's been revealed about Jesus in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so, here for the first time in John's epistle, we have a combination of faith and love joined together in an inseparable singular commandment. that's joined with faith, believing. And so, assurance leads to the basis of prayer, which leads to confidence in Christ. Look what it says in verse 24, repeating again from verse 21. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. By the spirit whom he's given to us. The last verse returns to the subject of abiding. And remember what abiding means. It means to dwell. It means to remain. It means to be in a particular place. And it has with it the idea that this isn't a temporary place where you're staying. This isn't a tent it isn't a temporary trailer. It isn't temporary housing. This is the place where you are meant to be forever. We live and move and have our being in Christ. We have confidence in Jesus. And here's the, the catch. We live in him. And he lives in us. That's what John is saying. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20... John wrote concerning Jesus when he was speaking to the churches. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice, I'll come into him, and I will sup with him or have fellowship with him, and he with me. This is what abiding means. It means friendship and fellowship. In Luke 24, after Jesus rose from the dead and on earth, Easter Day, Resurrection Sunday, he took a trip with a couple of guys and and they started walking along a road and Jesus began to recount to them all of the fulfillment of prophecy. It says he began to expound from Moses and the prophets everything concerning the Messiah, how he had to suffer and die and come back to life. And it says when the sun set, the two travelers invited Jesus to come in and abide with us. And so he we went in at their invitation. And then the most strange and wonderful thing happened. When Jesus went into their home, the Bible says he took bread and he broke it. And they immediately knew who he was. I want you to think about this for just a moment. The guest he's invited in becomes the host. Have you ever had a situation where you invited somebody over to your house and they just sort of took over? They just sort of took over. They pretend you, you made the statement hey, mi casa es tu casa, and they believed you. Your refrigerator became their refrigerator. Your bedroom became their bedroom. Your stuff became their stuff. They literally came in and they took over. That's exactly what Jesus does when you invite him into your heart. He comes in and he takes over. And he begins to address the difficulties in your life. And he begins to address the problems in your life and and he begins to address the issues of the past and he begins to address the issues in the present and he begins to address the issues of of guilt and the Bible says that when you become a Christian Jesus comes in and he, he lives inside of you. And that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. In Romans 8, 9 it says, But you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ. He is not his. Assurance and the basis of prayer. And the confidence will never be real. If Jesus isn't real. And if the spirit inside of you isn't real. And so John speaks of this mutual abiding. One in the other. He in us. And us in him. Here's what John is basically saying. No one. No one. No one can claim that he abides in Christ. Unless he or she is obedient in at least three basic areas. Over and over again he said to us. Number one, you have to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. Number two, you have to love the brothers. And number three, moral righteousness. That is, I'm not talking about you're perfect. What I'm talking about is what John is talking about. He's saying that Christians, inside of their hearts, want to make a commitment to do what's right. Once the revelation is known of what is right, So abiding in Christ isn't some mystical experience. It's not just simply some subjective feeling. It's not a sense of well-being. It's not an altered state of consciousness. It's not a mystical revelation or a mystical experience that you claim where you go, yeah, you know, I was smoking or I took LSD or I did this or that, and I had this vision of God. What John is basically saying is, I don't care what you've experienced. If your experience doesn't include acknowledging what Jesus has done, if your experience doesn't include a real love for God and a love for each other, if your experience doesn't include a profound and deep change of heart where you want to live your life differently, then you can't say that you abide in Christ. Abiding in Christ includes confessing Jesus, cooperating with what he said about himself, and change. So what does the Christian do with the condemning heart? Here's what you do. If you're plagued by guilt, if your past comes up and rears its ugly head and says, phony, liar, hypocrite. We can claim God's forgiveness in Christ. We recognize his grace and mercy is greater than any failure or any guilt because God knows everything, because God knows everything. Christians can trust that God understands and that he has made A provision for you. He knew exactly who you are. And he knew exactly what you would need. And he would make the exact provision that would be necessary. What do we do with the gnawing accusation that hounds us and and preys on us? We don't ignore it. We don't rationalize it. We don't excuse it. We set our hearts on Christ. We remember the gospel. We remember the attributes of God. We remember that God is able to make promises and keep promises. And then we set our hearts on God's love. And when we feel guilty we mind ourselves, we remind ourselves that God knows everything. He knows our motives. He knows our actions. Have you ever noticed that you judge other people by what they do? But you judge yourself by what you mean. Well, I know what I meant. See, God knows exactly what you meant each and every time. And when we feel guilty... And we remind ourselves that God knows everything. When we hear the voice of assurance and we hear the voice of confidence, and then we hear the voice of guilt screaming and accusing, we allow the voice of God and faith to drown out the other voice where God shouts, I'm greater. My mercy's greater. My grace is greater. My forgiveness is greater. So, what's the point of the passage? Don't be too hard on yourself. Don't let guilt overwhelm you. Be overwhelmed by God's love. Be overwhelmed by his mercy and his grace. Be overwhelmed by his forgiveness. Focus on the Father rather than on your failure. Choose to focus on Christ rather than condemnation. Choose to focus on the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life to help you defeat the flesh assurance, prayer, confidence. Do you know what all of those things do? They bring you into the presence of God. And when you're in the presence of God, you're able, like it says in the book of Colossians and Ephesians, to know that God has chosen you. He's adopted you. He's accepted you. You are accepted in the beloved. God knows everything, verse 20. God, you know that his love for you remains unaffected by your own fickle heart. I don't feel saved. You know what? Your salvation isn't based on how you feel. I don't feel right. God's made me right in Christ. I don't feel forgiven. Jesus said that he forgives you. John has already repeated if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Confidence should never become an excuse for self righteousness or pride or cockiness or irreverence. Confidence and assurance should never become an excuse. For rebellion and disobedience. You know, I've, I found an interesting Roman coin. I don't own the coin, but I did see it. What's interesting about this coin is on the Roman coin, there's, a, there's an altar and a plow. And the inscription reads in Latin ready for either. In other words, on the coin is this picture of a cow and a picture of an altar and a a picture of of a plow. The ox in the picture is prepared to till the ground or to make the ultimate sacrifice. And I found that very interesting because it becomes a type and a picture of Jesus himself. Who's prepared to sow the seed. But he's also prepared to make the sacrifice. And then he invites you. To do exactly the same. To sow. The seed. Of service. And sacrifice. And so we as followers of Jesus. That's exactly who we are. That's exactly what we do. How do we deal with the condemning heart? We remember our assurance before God. We remember that assurance gives us the basis for prayer. And we remember that God is greater than any condemnation that our heart would choose to heap upon us. To which will it be? Faith in the Father or failure? I think you know the right answer. We're going to pray. We're going to have communion. We're going to—I just ask that you all hold the elements so we all have a chance to partake together. Heavenly Father, we live in a broken world. It makes perfect sense to us that when we do what's wrong, there's a sense of guilt. But it also makes perfect sense to us that because we love you and because we trust you, that there's a solution to the problem of guilt. There's a remedy for failure. That God's love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, and the sacrifice of Jesus is greater than our guilt, greater than our failure, bigger than our heart. And so, again, Lord, we pray that even as we prepare for communion right at this very moment, that, Lord, you would prepare our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would be open, willing, able to examine ourselves just like what the scriptures say. And Lord, if there's something in our life that's displeasing to you, Lord, we pray that you would reveal it. Lord, we want to worship you for what Jesus has done. Lord, we want to participate in in a witness that what you've done for us and how you've defeated death, and how you've given us eternal life. All of that is wonderful. But Lord, we also know that you want to give us a victorious life. And so again, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would minister to us and reveal to us and restore to us anything that's broken past grievances, offenses committed. Lord, we pray that you would wash us and cleanse us and prepare us so that we could love you and worship you and serve you and then serve each other. So prepare our hearts in Jesus' name.